come to certainly one of the most interesting and important chapters in the book. You can even uh, try to make those distinctions. But the temptation of Christ is an extremely interesting once you begin to understand what is taking place here. And uh, so we'll spend a couple of weeks. Today I want to kind of give you uh, an overview of why this is even recorded for us and what we're supposed to understand. And then next week we'll look at all three temptations in their own uh, order. Uh, last week, though, by way of review, we saw the baptism of Jesus Christ. And we saw the baptism of him by the Holy Spirit and fire. As John says, he would be, Jesus would uh, be baptizing us in the Holy Spirit and fire. And my take on that, and I'm not the only one, but I think in the context is it's a, easy to make a case for it, that that's a reference to the fact that you will either be baptized in the Holy Spirit or you will be baptized in the fires of hell. There's only two kinds of people those in Christ and those who are rebels to Christ. So his coming is the focal point of human history. And the only thing that matters is what you do with Christ. So I, I think that's the reference there. Then we saw the baptism of Jesus himself, how that marks the beginning of Jesus' official public ministry. Secondly, and connected to the first, it was when he was anointed or filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit which is, as we know from the Old Testament, God's sign that he is commissioning someone for a work. We've seen this in a couple of weeks in Sunday school, when Elisha is going to send one of the other prophets to Jehu, kind of in secret, to anoint him to be king. That was God's step. Once that was done by a legitimate prophet, then you knew that was God calling you to a work. And then thirdly, it is a public sign to John that he was indeed the Messiah, as John was told. And when you see the Holy Spirit coming down on uh, whoever you see it coming down on, you'll know that is the Messiah. So he probably suspected Jesus to be, but that was the official statement. That's why the very next day when he sees Jesus coming by when he's preaching, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. All right, so then uh, we also looked at Psalm 2, kind of putting some of the different, the incarnation, the baptism of Jesus and his ascension, kind of setting them in motion and, and what, what's going on in each one of those. We looked at Psalm 2, which I think has a reference to the ascension and the enthronement of Jesus. Remember, Jesus and John both said, the kingdom is at hand, it's about to begin. And so it says, as for me, I, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So this is in reference to the ascension and Christ sitting down on the throne of God, right? He says, I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so I, I take that, that begotting to be the coronation when Christ assumes the throne. And so he says, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of your possession. So the kingdom is about bringing uh, sinners into the church, redeeming them and bringing them into the church. So I think that just kind of lays all that out. And so Jesus assumed his kingly position, and so the kingdom began when he ascended on high and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Some see that beget, begetting 
as something that was eternally done. And I, I think the Bible does teach that Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. In other words, he has always been the unique Son of God. But some see this as that begetting takes place when Christ was incarnated and came into the world. And I think that creates more problems than it solves. Plus, again, in this context, I don't think there's any other way to take it but the coronation. And uh, then to, I, I alluded to Acts 2 last week, but I didn't actually read it. So let's just read this and see if this doesn't support what I've been saying. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn, this is Peter, of course, speaking, sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, that is David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of what we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of, the, of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you see yourselves and are seen, are seen and hearing. And then he quotes an Old Testament prophecy about that. For David did not ascend into the heavens, and he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord. I think you can read that as king. And Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. He's sitting on the throne. And he quotes from Psalm 2 to that effect. So I, I just think all that comes together very nicely. If you just kind of stop and think it through. Alright, so. The temptation of Jesus Christ. Up until now, there's been a lot of connecting the dots of the Old Testament to Jesus and the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. There have been some lofty claims that he was virgin born, that the Father is pleased with him, that could only be said of someone who was sinless, as we saw last week. But did his life measure up to these claims? Was he truly the spotless Lamb of God, and never once fall, fall prey to sin. And so the testing of Jesus in this chapter is a microcosm of his entire life to give us a look at his sinlessness and proof that he is truly all he said he was and all the prophets said he is. So obviously he lived his whole life without sin, but now we're seeing an example of that. And, and, and to see it in a unique way, not just kind of an everyday thing, but in a very special way. The word, now, again, one thing we need to keep in mind is that the word for tempt uh, can and usually does in the New Testament mean to test. Uh, and so this word is, in a sense, morally neutral. Sometimes when you read the word tempt, it's in a negative connotation where someone is being tempted to sin. Most often, though, it's used in the, in the uh, connotation of uh, the Lord testing us as it is here. But notice the difference. The Lord sends Jesus, God, the Father sends the, Jesus into the desert to be tested, to show who he is. The devil comes, the, the, what, it, what is the testing? The devil coming 
and tempting Jesus to sin. Right? So there's a difference. The the word is morally neutral. It is not a sin to be tempted. It is certainly not a sin to be tested. The sin is in the purpose of the one who tempts. Satan is sinning and and trying to get Jesus to sin. The Father isn't sinning, because as we'll see here in James, he's not, he doesn't want anyone to sin, but he's doing this so that Jesus might shine forth in all his holiness and righteousness. And so it's a sin to tempt to sin. So, while Satan tempts to evil, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness that he might be tested as to his righteousness and to be shown worthy to be the Son of God, to be the Lamb of the world. Because remember the Lamb in the Old Testament had to be without blemish, right? That he um, To show that he is worthy of that. And so God doesn't send tests to get us to sin, but to get us to be satisfied with him. He, he tests us. He sends us to trials. Sometimes it is that we might be a testimony to others. Sometimes I think they all are to help us to grow to learn to be satisfied with him alone. He doesn't want us to sin. He wants us to overcome. So you see a different motivation of what Satan is doing and what the Father is doing. And when we, as Christians, begin to see that temptations and sufferings and afflictions have a greater purpose of testing, then we gain some of the most important insight into godly living. When we understand that These things happen not to get us to sin. The Lord doesn't want us to sin. The Lord wants us to be strong in the faith and to love him and to rely upon him alone and to be satisfied with him alone. And so when we understand why these things happen to us, it's extremely helpful in in, in how we uh, live and deal with them in our lives. And so in chapter 3, we had the anointing of the king. And here we have the testing of the king. For Jesus to offer a satisfying sacrifice, he had to be sinless. And so here we are given a first-hand look at how he always lived his life. Um, in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, we read that the devil had ended every, when he had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. There were no, no doubt no doubt, similar testings throughout Jesus' life, uh, but here we have it recorded specifically so we can read about it and see it in action. As we would have expected, as we watch Jesus overcome sin, he does give us some principles to our own battle with sin. But one thing I want us to see today is that the temptation of Christ is not recorded just so that we have some good examples to follow in our battle with sin. It is certainly that. And we will certainly make, make mostly next week deal with that. Some more practical application. But there's something much more profound going on here than just that. In uh, Mark 1-2, it says the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Uh, Luke and Mark both say that the, that he wasn't just 
led by the Spirit, but he was actually driven out there. In other words, it was God's, the Father's purpose that Christ would do this. It was a non-negotiable. It had to be done. We also see there that he was tempted the entire 40 days in one way or another. But these 40, these three towards the end uh, are given specifically for us to, to study and, and to be, to see. So, though by Mark using this word drive or impel, it reminds us of such times of testings uh, our testings are part of God's plan. It's a non-negotiable. It's why we are here. It doesn't mean our whole life is a trial. We're just miserable and under trial and tribulation all the time. I mean, some people's lives have been like that. But the point is, is that they are part and parcel of Christian living. And we, we cannot ask to be removed from them. We can only ask to be, to do well in them. Because nothing proves our love for the Lord like faithfulness nearing difficulty. And then that's why we see this here with Christ. Such times are ordered by God. Now Satan is not freely going around wrecking havoc on everyone in the church. Uh, he's only, he can only do what the Lord allows him to do. But the, the Lord allows him to do this for noble purposes so that we might pass these testings. He's not going to give us more than we can bear, as Paul says, but they're coming. And the point is not to discourage us, to beat us down. It's Trials aren't because the Lord doesn't love us. Try, the trials are there so that we might see more of Christ and more of what we have in Christ. And that we might earn reward. Uh, what we do on this earth has profound effect in eternity. We're not given a lot of insight, but that at least is said uh, that that God will make it all right, and it'll be worth it. That there's a there's a good purpose in it, and all those things are very important for us to know. But on the flip side, it makes it particularly reprehensible when we don't react properly to trials, because we are specifically saved for that purpose. And so when we complain, when we become miserable, when we don't publicly uh, testify in some way of the Lord's goodness and his help, then we're, we're, we're failing as Christians. And so we know that those are things that we must deal with. We want to uh, be aware of those things. Our victory is sure, both in this life and in the life to come, in the world to come. And so the Lord does not send these things that we would fail. The Lord sends these things that we might be more than conquerors. And we, and we want to remember that. Yes, we are going to fail. All of us have failed. All of us are going to fail at times. But our lives should be one that glorifies the Lord. The people see us, and they see someone who loves Christ. Another thing we learn in passing here is that there is a real personal being called Lucifer or Satan. There are those, generally the, the liberals, the Christian liberals, who have tried to suggest that Satan in the Bible is really just uh, the battle that we all face with our inward sin, with evil, in, in some cosmic way. Well, first of all, that, what does that say about Jesus? If, if Satan is 
that thing that I battle is the sin of my life, then, then it would suggest that, that you know, who's, what's Jesus battling here? Well, we know he's without sin, so no, he's battling an actual person, something on the outside of him. Satan is real, and his sole purpose is to further the rebellion to God's will. And so it's, it is hard not to see that his main attack seems to be trying to get Jesus to focus on himself and not the will of God. And that's how it is with us. In other words, we do see in the temptation how Satan works and the, and the way to overcome those things. That it has certainly got those elements in it. But notice here that Satan doesn't come trying to get Jesus to murder somebody or to sleep with a woman or something like that. He, he knows who he's dealing with. No. When he gets, gets it, remember, he's an angel of light. Uh, is is sometimes there's overt temptation that we that, that that we face that we know is wrong, but often Satan knows what to put in front of us, things that are legitimate. And we'll see here that all three of these temptations are legitimate things that Christ had every right to. The problem was, how are you going to get them? What are you going to do the, do with them? Are you going to get them and use them for the glory of, of God, or are you going to get them your way or in a, a sinful way? And so that's good for us to know that, that there are plenty of legitimate things out there, but not everything is proper for us to have or to pursue. Or there's a right way to pursue it, as we're going to see here with Jesus. Uh, all these things, Jesus was going to have the kingdoms of the world. But he's not going to get it through worshiping Satan. He was going to get it through worshiping the Father and, and obeying the Father, in a sense, right? So, this is a very interesting thing for us to consider. He, Satan tries to get him to fulfill the plan of the Father, but to do so Satan's way. And so this is huge because it's important for us to understand that living life by our own wisdom and, and for our own will as the center of all things couldn't be more simple, more unchristlike. We are not turned loose to just go and do the best we can. We are to closely follow the word, closely follow Christ, and, and stay close to him and to grow in his knowledge and, and, and to serve the Lord well. As we shall see, there is nothing innately wrong with anything that Satan tempts Jesus to attain, as I said, but there's the sin is in that they are neither, this is neither the time nor the way that the Father has revealed to Christ that they were to be done. So we're reminded that a Christian who lives life as if I'm just free to uh, serve the Lord any old way I want to, uh, is not does not have any biblical support. So, the point then is that we can do good things and be sinning. We can do good, legitimate things, but we do them for the wrong reason. And of course, we've said this in years before, right? Motivation is everything. Why I'm doing what I'm doing determines whether it's sin or not. Now, there's some things that are just wrong, because the Bible says they're wrong, right? But even if I'm doing the right thing, even if I'm coming to church, and I'm, I'm putting money in the play, I'm listening to the sermon, but if I'm doing it for show, I'm doing it for uh, any other reason than because I, I want to serve the Lord in it, it's sin. Right? Another thing we have to understand here 
is that the temptation, and this is really the, the, the biggest lesson today, this is kind of the heart of everything, the temptation can only be properly understood by seeing it in the context of the entire Bible and God's redemptive plan. The temptation is can only be understood by comparing it to Adam and Eve in the garden and their temptation. And we'll try to explain that as we go along. And so this is not just an isolated event where Jesus has set an example for us of how to overcome sin. As I said, it is that. But that's the, that's the, the minor part of all this. To make sense of this, we have to see it in light of Romans 5, where Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. Right? Why do you think Jesus is called that? Because we were all in Adam in the flesh, right, when he was there. Um, and we hadn't been born yet, but he sinned and brought ruin upon all of us. In the second Adam, in Jesus, all those then who are in Christ, and we, if the elect have been placed in Christ, all in Christ, in as he faces temptation uh, and overcomes and does not sin, he earns for us a righteousness so that all who are in Christ have his righteousness imputed to us. So that this is our salvation in action. Because it's not just enough for us to have our sins forgiven. We have to be made righteous. In Adam, we were made unrighteous. And, we'll, and you know, someday when we get to Romans 5, we'll, we'll go through all this again. In Christ, we are made righteous. And so this is letting us see him, the second Adam undo what the first one did. That's the whole point. If you miss that, you really don't understand what's going on here. So if Jesus was going to undo what Adam did, he was going to have to obey perfectly because Adam failed miserably. To do this, he would have to face the same enemy and defeat him. But one of the great things to see here is that Adam was in the Garden of Eden. He was in the most perfect of circumstances. He was not had not fasted 40 days. He was well fed. He had every, he had, he had no concept of pain, no concept of want. He was, as we say, just, he was fat and happy. There was, there was, he just had nothing to get, he needed. And he failed miserably. Satan put that one thing in front of Eve that she couldn't have and, uh, nothing else mattered. His stomach was full. He was not alone. Every need was being met. He was perfectly contented and he sinned. Jesus, in a sense, in the wilderness, there's a couple of reasons why he's in the wilderness, and here's one, is he had not, his physical, he had no physical comforts. He was hungry, tired, alone, and he does right. So you just see how much greater he is than Adam. When we contrast this, excuse me, to the wilderness that Jesus was in, we understand then that he had not eaten 40 days, and we begin to appreciate the character of the sinless one. Such hunger would make one weak. And, uh, uh, you you know, I I mean, I've never fasted 40 days. I have fasted for a few days. I'm sure Jesus was drinking water at the time. 
Um, but uh, there's a point where really all you start to think about is food. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've gone two or three days and really felt pretty good. I remember the, the one time I, I fasted, uh, I was in Wisconsin, and uh, I fat, started to fast over the weekend. And I, I was surprised at how well I did. I mean, I was drinking uh, water, uh, perhaps juice, but and it's, but I was working third shift. So I get through Saturday, Sunday, Monday, doing great, go to work, and boy, it all fell apart. <laughs> you don't work when, you have, when you're not eating food. And uh, so here you got Jesus. He's it's, in other words, humanly speaking, he's as vulnerable as you can get. It, total opposite of where Adam was in the garden. It says the wild beasts were roaming about. And what Jesus did was revealed a power and a character that was far beyond the first Adam. And of course, while the first Adam failure cast the human race still uh, into misery and condemnation of sin, Jesus, in his far greater obedience, brings all who are placed in him in the salvation of glory, as we've said. So both face a challenge early on. Adam clearly... I won't get into it now, but clearly I think the temptation took uh, took part, if not in the first couple of days of creation, uh, within the first month of creation. Early on, they, they have a challenge. One fails and one triumphs. And so that's what's going on here. We're seeing the second Adam fix what Adam, the first Adam did. Now it's important to note, that Jesus fasted those 40 days and nights. It wasn't that he was looking for food in a desperate attempt to satisfy his hunger, but couldn't do it, because I think that would have been sin, He because he would not be satisfied and content in the Father's will for him. He wasn't depressed. He wasn't disgruntled. He was fasting. He was concentrating on the Father's will. He was growing spiritually. He was feasting on the heavenly manna. He was gaining strength. He was doing what we, as we've said, we are to do with trials and tribulation. We are using them to grow. So that when the temptation, real temptation comes along, he's ready for it. He isn't idle. He's hard at work. And so my point there is that we need to spend time growing in the Lord and preparing for trial and tribulation so that we're ready for it. One of the applications we've made, I think, in the past is uh, death. You don't live life with no thoughts of death. You prepare for your death. You prepare for your loved one's death. You you think about those things. You 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 uh, not in a morbid way, but you understand what life's about. You understand things that are going to happen, and you ask the Lord to help you as you grow in the Word to be able to use those things to be ready for the day of real trial and tribulation. So we need to spend as much time and energy in our spiritual health as we do in our physical health. As we've said before, the most effective way that we can testify to the grace of God and His glory is by doing right when everything around us and everyone around us is screaming that we curse God and die. That's what you know. so good about Job. Job sins not when everybody is giving him bad advice. 
But if we follow Christ's example and grow in the knowledge of the love of God, as we've seen that he was doing, by the means that he has given us, then when temptation comes, when, when the great trials of life come upon us, we don't end up, even if we maybe don't always react perfectly at the start, we at soon will be able to uh, give, give it to the Lord and not fall into depression and worry, as so many do. And so, just uh, one thing before we go on here, remember in James chapter 1, where we're told, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice the use of the word trial and temptation. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, and become mature saints. Let no one say when he is tempted, same word, but now we see it used in a different way. When you are tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He tests, but he tests for good. He doesn't tempt for evil. It's the same word. It's, a, it's the same thing. Satan, when he tempts Jesus to eat bread, it is the Father tempting Jesus to not eat bread. You know, for example. But you see here, then, how to understand what's going on. So God never sends anything our way to get us to sin, and so we can never blame our failure to glorify God on any circumstance because God didn't give us those things for that purpose. And James goes on to say that if we use the testings of God in a simple way, it's because we've already decided to do our will and not God's. And of course, that's exactly what, what, why Jesus doesn't sin, is because he was never going to do anything but the will of the Father. And the reason, that, and, and, and not, not just that, well, I want to, you know, we'll just use the extreme case. I Well, okay, let's use the second one. It's not that Jesus says, well, I want to jump off the pinnacle, but I know the Father doesn't want me to, so I'm going to do it. Because I think that would have, that would have been a problem. That would have been sin. Jesus wants, he delights in obeying the Father and doing his will. And so he's not tempted to do even the legitimate things. And jumping off the pinnacle wasn't a sense legitimate because he quotes from the Old Testament that the angels will bury you up and, and you won't hit the ground, but it, it, served, it, it served Satan's purpose. It didn't serve the Father's. He, does, he only delights to do the Father's will. So Jesus had exactly the, the right reaction to the testing of the Father and the temptation of Satan. The reason was there is nothing in him that would put his will over the Father's will, and in part because his and the Father's will were the same. They, they, they were after the exact same thing, so why would Jesus depart from that and worship Satan? Of course, it wouldn't make any sense. And he says that is in John 12, I believe, or John 10, I, when it says, I and the Father are one, it's really there in reference to our, we are one in will. Because uh, him and the Father are not one person. They're not one in that sense. They're one in purpose. And that's what Jesus is saying there. Well, we, we dealt with that when we were there. So his hunger also needs to be seen that we might realize that these are real temptations 
And he's going to have to decide if he's going to do the right thing while his body is quite hungry. Uh, I think the first one reminds us that these are real temptations. They aren't just something that Jesus had no interest in. He was hungry. Uh, he uh, did need the trust in the Father. He was going to have all the kingdoms of the earth. There are things that were legitimately his. They were, in a sense, things that he needed. And yet, he, there was a right way to attain them. And so, as we said, all three temptations were in the right context, things that Jesus would want. Daily physical needs, God's providential care, the kings of the earth. They were all things that he did expect to have. They were real temptations. And I think the, the bread, the hunger reminds us of that. Because we'll see here in a moment, there are some people who think that Jesus wasn't tempted at all. And that's a problem. We'll get to that. No, he was hungry. So the bread and the stone was a legitimate temptation. But he loved something more than his hunger. That was, of course, the Father. And so many of the fruits, the pursuits in life are not wrong in themselves. It is what you must do in order to have them that brings sin into the picture. And so if you want to do what Jesus would do, then it's rather simple. You know, how do I overcome temptation? Well, Jesus only did those things that pleased the Father. He, he said as much, right? And the Father twice says from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He could not have said that if Jesus did things that did not please him. So everything Jesus did pleased the Father. He wanted to do the Father's will. So if you want to judge how well you are progressing spiritually, how do you measure up to that? Don't list some bad things and you know, like murder or stealing or something like that and say, well, I must be a pretty good person because I haven't murdered anybody. No, you're, you're, setting, you're, you're lowering the bar to anybody can cross it. If you're sitting there thinking that you're a pretty good person and don't need the righteousness of Christ as your very own, they consider how often you do God's will compared to your own. Has there ever been any time in your life where you had no consideration for what God wanted and you did what you wanted to do? You're going to hell. You're a sinner. You're a great sinner. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's, and so, uh, that, there's no question about that. Don't, don't, don't lower the bar by saying, well, I'm not a really bad person. I, I haven't done you know, a lot of really bad things. All, all it takes is one to condemn you. <clears throat> Yet we're told here in Matthew, in all the Gospels, but that there is one exception to that. Even in an extremely weakened state, he was no less likely to perfectly glorify the Father. And that is the righteousness that I want. I want it first to be credited by account so that I can stand righteous before God without any reference to sin. And then I want that righteousness in me. I want the Spirit of God to work that kind of righteousness in me that I might be godly. We want it uh, forensically. We want it on our, our ledger. We want it on our account. But we also want it experientially. Right? I want to love Christ 
and to love God like Christ loves God, love the Father. Now, there's one more thing that we want to examine closely before we end today, and it's, it's all in conjunction with this. Because Jesus was doing what the first Adam did not do, which was to be tempted and make the right decision for the right reason, these temptations had to be real, and therefore Jesus had to have the same nature that Adam had when he was tempted. And we're going to see here in a moment that what we did not need, and would not have done us any good, is to have the righteousness of God imputed to us. If that was the case, Jesus didn't have to come to the earth to begin with, just impute it to us. We needed a human being, because we are human, and to stand righteous as a human being, I need to have the righteousness of a human being faced with a trial, always doing the right thing for the right reason. That's the righteousness we need. And that's why Jesus had to then become a human in the same sense Adam was, so that he could do what Adam could not do, or did not do. <clears throat> now, all that might sound very logical enough, but there's some different viewpoints here that are interesting to explore when it comes to the nature of Christ and temptation today. When Adam fell, he had a sinless nature. Right, he was without sin when he was created. God pronounced him good. But he had a peccable nature. Peccable means changeable. He was righteous, but he could change. He could sin. He could do right, but he could also do wrong. <clears throat> peccable means he it was capable of change, so he was capable of sinning. Adam's nature was one in which he was capable of not sinning, but he was also capable of sinning. That's what peccable means. See, it, it could go either way. This explains the possibility of being tempted. He was, tr- he had true free choice, something that no man has had since then. He could have chosen not to follow Eve and eat the fruit. Uh, he did not. He chose to eat the fruit with Eve, right? He was not God who has nothing in him who could respond to sin. He, he, he had something in him that could respond to sin. So Adam could be tempted before there was anything in him that was drawn to it because he was upright to begin with. So Adam could be faced with a choice. <clears throat> Remember Eve says <clears throat> she looked at that fruit and it was good. It looked, she knew it was something that was tasty. That's a temptation. And there was something in her that could choose or not to choose, just like there was with Adam. But he, but but they were not sinning because they saw something that was good. The sin was when they decided to go ahead and eat it, right? So sin is defined by God's nature to begin with. So God, in and of himself, cannot be tempted to sin because sin is defined by who he is. So that's why God could, could not come down in a man suit and do what Jesus did. Jesus had to have man's nature as well as God's nature for this thing to work. Because God can't be tempted. To, you can't tempt God because with, with creation, because he's created it all to start with. He didn't need it to begin with. Right? So there's some things to keep in mind. So my point here then 
why all this is important, is that Jesus' human nature had to be of the same sort for him to succeed where Adam failed. He had to have a nature where he was capable of not sinning, but also free to choose which way he would go in his human nature. So while as in his human nature he was like Adam, as God, he all, remember, he was he also had a God's nature, he had divine nature, he had a human nature, two natures in one being, Jesus Christ. As God, his nature would never do anything contrary to the Father's will. So he had a peccable nature as a human being, but in his person he was also impeccable. He could never, as God, do that which was displeasing to the Lord, but he, but he was a human. He had the same nature as Adam. Now some refused to admit that Jesus had a nature capable of choosing the other way, of, we might say sinning. Now I just said Jesus was never capable of sinning as a man because he was also God. But some to say, well, no, Jesus did not have the nature that Adam had. And they do so because they're trying to uh, guard Jesus' sin- sinlessness. And I understand that. But at the same time, we have to understand what, what's going on here. God could not simply have come down as God and been tempted by Satan because he can't be tempted. He can't be hungry. If, if, if Jesus was just God in a man suit, this is why the... the Errors in the first few centuries had to be refuted. If Jesus was not really human, but just appeared to be human, then this was no temptation. He wasn't. He couldn't have been hungry. He could have pretended to be hungry, but he he couldn't have been right. So he had to be actual uh, human being who was actually hungry. But the God Man, who had both natures, could be tempted, but would always choose rightly because. It, he would have perfect love for the Father. In other words, the righteousness that is to be imputed to us is not simply God's righteousness that he has always had. That's not what we need. It is the righteousness that a man must have to be just before God. It is the one in which God laid before him two choices, and he chooses the right one, just as he did, remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he understood what was about to happen, and he says, I always do your will. I, not my will, but your will. I think it's another example here of Jesus, even though he is in pain, and, he, and, he, and there's certainly a certain amount of drawing back from the, of what was going to happen the next day, but because he wants to do the Father's will, he gladly does for the joy that was set before him, you see. That's the righteousness that we need. <clears throat> we don't need divine righteousness. We need human righteousness. Let's see, and that's the issue. Justifying righteousness is one of obedience that is earned, not just divine righteousness. Had Adam obeyed, remember, all his children would have been born righteous. But, of course, God would not have been glorified if the first Adam had obeyed. Uh, he would have been glorified, but God had to be glorified. That's why Adam fell, so that God could become a man and bring us back all to his own glory. He had to do the work. 
<clears throat> so only the God-man can keep the law with a perfect heart and earn a justifying righteousness. And so this is why Jesus had to have the ability to choose one or the other. I think the whole thing collapses. This also explains the 40 days in the wilderness. Because he is identifying with Israel in the 40 years in the wilderness. Remember, and we went through all this going through Exodus. This is why it's so important to understand the Old Testament. They were under a covenant, right, in the wilderness. And they were said, if you do right, if you keep covenant, what happens? You gain life. If you break covenant, you gain death. And so God says, I, I put life before you today. I, I put death before you. What, what will you have? And Jesus was born under that covenant. So when Jesus did what was right, he gains life. He earned life that the, the Jews could never do. But Jesus did it under that covenant. So as the God-man gains life as a reward, all us who are joint heirs with Christ, now we also have life. See, he was gaining life for us under the covenant. And he identifies, I think, with that with the 40 days, as opposed to Israel's 40 years. But the, the number 40 is, is um, important there. So his reward uh, was life, and we get it as when we are joined to Christ. And that's why this is so important and so fascinating. And this is, in a sense, the heart of the gospel. So I think where some tr- theologians trip up, and we're almost done here, is because they think that one cannot be tempted unless there is sin in your heart to begin with. And the reason they think that is because that's our experience, right? We're all born sinners. So when we think of temptation, we think about being drawn to sin, that which is evil. <clears throat> we had, um, but having the capability to sin, or the capability to choose to not obey is not the same as having the desire to sin. So I think it's perfectly fine for Jesus to have a nature in his human nature in which he is free to do as he pleases. (laughs) But as the God-man, he always is going to choose. The only thing that pleases him is to do the right thing. And that's the difference there. So there was never anything in Jesus that ever desired anything contrary to the Father's will, because that is sin. But he had to be able to be tempted. Two courses had to be laid before him so that he could freely choose one so that he could be rewarded with life under the covenant. As he demonstrates his perfect righteousness. Adam, in his sinless state, was capable of sinning, yet he was sinless until... He chose to go his do his own will instead of the, that of God's. And so Jesus in his 30 plus years could be faced with all kinds of temptations as he was. Remember, we know he was tired. All the temptations that we are, yet find no real pleasure in any of them because his overriding pleasure as the God-man was to be fully and always satisfied only with the Father. And we can't even... I don't know about you, but I can't even fathom how to only be satisfied in having the Lord and satisfied only in knowing Him. Because my body likes a lot of things, right? And my mind does too, and my pride likes a lot of things that aren't in God's will. 
And so, 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 so admittedly, we're talking about the incarnation and we can only scratch the surface. It's, it's certainly beyond our depth to experience that someone who only could be happy obeying the Father. That's what we need and that's what I want and someday we know that we will be like that. Amen. Uh, lastly, uh, Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, which which would be the case if God came down in a man's suit, right? But one who is in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's an amazing statement. And this cannot be said of God apart from the incarnation. So in his humanity, he knew that it was what it was like to be tempted. Tempted to be lazy. Tempted to have needs. To have different choices before him. But his love in life Kept him from sinning because he loved the Father only above all things. And I think again, that's why the, the the first temptation with bread makes us understand these are real temptations and not just things that Jesus had no didn't care one way or another. And so, in all these, we see re- one reason why God had to become a man, not just so that He could die, but also so that He could live a righteous life like Adam was supposed to. There had to be a test like Adam where he was told to do this or that to love self or to love God. We never read of Satan trying to tempt God until the tempt to, until the incarnation. Think about it. You know, Satan didn't try to tempt God to do something because, you know, God, he knew better. But the God man, he wasn't so sure about. <clears throat> Satan understood who Jesus was. Because he always made the right choice, he has become our unique and only Savior. Now, if all this sounds a little bit like a two-year-old trying to explain the incarnation, it's because that's exactly what's happening. We're trying to delve into things that we've got to be very careful. There's a certain amount of speculation going on here, an inference, and that's okay, but we got to make sure that we don't go too far or that we don't split hairs and, and it caused division over things that aren't clearly stated in Scripture, so I wanted to say that. The nature of Christ is a mystery. No one will fully understand it, this side of glory. But we do need to understand why the temptation is recorded for us, so, um, and that it is one aspect. <clears throat> it is, in one respect, a look at Satan in the Garden of Eden but facing a much more capable foe in Jesus Christ, in that second Adam. And it is a look, it has helped us understand that this is the righteousness that we need imputed to our account. And so I hope I have uh, made things clear, not more muddy, but uh, there's just extremely important things that are going on. And Any questions or comments before we close? Kudos to Sandra for picking that song out, because it goes so well with the message, but thank you for your attention. You're dismissed.